All right, well, it is great to be with all of you. And for those of you joining us online, we are so thankful for you, our family and friends that are joining online. And this morning we are continuing as a part of our worship, the study of God's word. And so if you have a Bible, or a Bible app, or if you have it completely memorized like Joe, you can just open up to Acts chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 8 through 15. I'm going to begin by reading the passage as a whole. We will pray over our text and over the message this morning, and we will see what the Lord has for us today. Again, that is Acts chapter 6. Verses 8 through 15. This is God's word. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this is Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of of an angel. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning because we believe not only are you the God who made the world and everything in it, but you are the God who is acting through Jesus Christ to save that which is lost. Lord, we thank you for reaching down into this world of darkness and saving a people for yourself. We thank you that we are the first fruits of the gospel here in our company, those who have believed in the name of Jesus. We would pray, Lord, for anyone among us this morning, anyone who is joining us online, Lord, if they have yet to be rescued from darkness, from the power of sin and death, to the glorious kingdom of joy, that is to be found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we would ask that they would be able today to participate in the glory of your kingdom through belief on the name of Jesus. We would ask today, Lord, as we listen to the teaching of your word, that you would use this human act of preaching in order to accomplish your divine means. We pray that you would strengthen us. We pray that you would create a people who are prepared to do good works. We pray that you would create people who are able to distinguish between truth and lies. And we pray that we would be a people who do not live in fear, 
but are filled with all boldness regarding that which is true and just and right. We believe, Lord, it is not an accident that we are here this morning. It is not an accident that we were born in this time and in this very place for a very specific purpose. And we pray that we would come to realize that purpose through the teaching of your word. So we commit this to you and pray that the name of Jesus would be glorified. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning we're continuing our study of the book of Acts, and we're calling this series Authentic Church. Again, as I've always said before our weekly messages, we're calling this series Authentic Church because for many people, their understanding of the church, its nature, and its mission comes from places other than the Word of God, other than the Bible itself. We've said that that's not necessarily wrong. That's not always wrong, though sometimes it certainly can be. Those other sources of information about what we believe the church is, what we think its nature is, what we think its purpose is, are twofold. Number one, we have experience. For many people, they don't really know what the Bible says about the church. They just know that they've been to church. Maybe they grew up in it, and they were shown this is what church is. Uh, for other people, maybe they didn't go to church growing up, but they attended. They were invited by a friend or a neighbor or a co-worker, and they visited a church. And Maybe it was a positive, maybe it was a negative experience, but in either case, for them, that's what church is. For other people, they have kind of a, a sense of desire. They, they want a church that, that looks like this, this image in their minds. Hey, I want a church, and I'm, I'm looking for a church that fits what I want. Now, like I said, the Lord can use those things. We can have experiences with churches that are good and right and genuine and true. They're, they are, in fact, biblical, and insofar as they are, that is good. We have desires for certain things. Some of that might be good. We, we desire to be loved. We desire a community that tells the truth, but also a community that does so with grace. We, we desire that, and, and Scripture would affirm that that's what God wants too in His churches. But as I've e emphasized, the problem is both with our individual desires, the kind of church we're looking for, and also our experiences in the past, sometimes those things fall short of the Word of God. Indeed, sometimes those things actually contradict the Word of God. But in any case, how are we going to know if we don't know the Word of God? And so that's why we're studying the book of Acts together. We're wanting to know, hey, if we're going to do church together, if we're going to be a church, and we're going to invest in this thing called church, we want to know we're doing what God wants us to do. Not just what's been done before. That might be good, but I don't know. And not just, hey, I want to make this whatever I want it to be. No, God, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to commit my life to the church, I want to know that I am doing so according to your very word. And so that's why we're studying the book of Acts and what we're looking for. Uh, today, as we come to the end of chapter 6, we also come to the end of a section. So if you're somebody that, that likes structure and outlines and you want to know kind of what's the flow of the book of Acts, it might be helpful to note that this represents the end of a major section of the book of Acts. Up until this point, the book of Acts is focused on, namely, the Apostle Peter and the church at Jerusalem. But here marks the end of that focus. From here on out, what you're going to see in the book of Acts is a shift from Peter and the church at Jerusalem 
to Paul and the Gentile mission to the world. You're going to see that. And you'll remember one of the things that Jesus said is that this mission of the gospel, this message of the gospel would go out all to all the world beginning in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And guess what's happening? That's literally happening. And geographically, that's literally unfolding precisely the way that Jesus said. And so Stephen and his story marks a transition. The mission was domestic. It was just at home. It began primarily with Jewish people, almost exclusively. And you're going to see the emphasis begin to shift and to change. I'm calling this message this morning, Dare to be a Stephen. Dare to be a Stephen. Now, I'm stealing that from Sunday school. Because when I grew up, I remember, and I'm not kidding you, so I'm, I'm you know, uh, almost getting near 50 now, but I remember Sunday school. And I remember one of the common lessons I was taught as a little boy was dare to be a Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. And the story of Daniel and the lion's den, the way that Daniel didn't grow up in a comfortable environment where the dominant culture shared all his values, shared his religion, was tolerant of all his religious practices. No, Daniel grew up in a hostile, foreign, pagan environment. And so Daniel had a really hard mission. He had a hard life. It was hard to be faithful to the one God of Israel in his environment, and yet faithful he was. We know that Daniel was even threatened with death. And again, the only reason Daniel didn't die uh, a martyr's death was not through lack of trying, but simply through divine, miraculous agency. You probably know the story that Daniel was thrown to the lion's den, and, and typically they would starve their lions, right? Like these weren't even, I don't want to fall into a well-fed lion's den. You know what I'm talking about? Like lions that get fed all day long, and they're just kind of fat, lazy, and they're, I don't even want to get thrown into that den. But most likely, since these lions were used for this very thing, for, for amusement, uh, for, for execution, these are probably hungry lions, right? They're starving, they're chomping at the bit. Daniel's thrown in, and God sends an angel to miraculously preserve Daniel's life. And so we tell these stories, we tell the stories of the great saints of old, because we never know when we're going to live in a day and age when we're going to be called to be faithful under similar circumstances. And I think what we have in front of us in Acts chapter 6 is a Daniel-like figure for the Christian church. A Daniel-like figure for the Christian church. That's what Stephen is. And I think if you're just a pragmatic, you know, results-oriented kind of person, you don't really want to dare to be a Daniel or a Stephen. You know, you're like, wow, if standing up for the Lord ends up this way, I don't know that I really want to do it. But if your heart is for Jesus and you're just saying, I love Jesus, I want to follow him, I want to be like him, I, I want my life to no longer be my own, I want it to belong in body, mind, and spirit to my Savior, if that's what you want, then Stephen is a hero. He's a hero of the faith. Now again, these heroes of the faith, which in church history we've referred to as saints, we're not saying that these are divine beings, they, they don't receive worship, but they are worthy of, of honor and respect. And honor and respect simply for the fact that God uses such men and women as models of what faith looks like 
under similar circumstances. And so Stephen is going to become, I'm, I'm giving it away, but we're going to get into this next week in his uh, fantastic message that he's going to give in chapter 7. But in case you don't know, Stephen is going to be the first martyr of the Christian church. Up until this point, we've seen increasing heat. The heat is being turned up against the Christian church. At first, it's just legal threats. And we all know that might be enough to shut some of us up. Government throws a legal threat and you be quiet. The second time, it's not just legal threats. It was legal threats plus flogging. So they're actually physically beaten. They were arrested and physically beaten. And now it goes to the next level. Stephen is ultimately going to die. And I do think for many people in the American church, this could be a stumbling block. Because, gosh, I don't know if I want to be a part of something where the end result could be my death. I'm kind of hoping for, like, give me some principles on how to live a nice, comfortable, cozy life where I don't come into conflict with anybody. Because that's certainly not what you're going to get if you dare to be a Stephen, if you dare to follow Jesus Christ to the very end. So what I hope to do today is encourage us with an examination of what the text is saying, and then I want to conclude by giving you three principles that we can derive from this section. So follow along with me here in verse 8. It says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now, who was Stephen? So we saw who Stephen was last week. Stephen was one of the seven men chosen to oversee a ministry of either food and or money distribution for the poor. So if you remember, the apostles have been particularly tasked with praying and administering the teaching of the word of God to the people. That was their primary ministry focus. Up till that point, the apostles would do other things. So it's not like they were like, hey, this is all we do, we don't do other things. No, they would do other things. But as we all know, sometimes your primary thing bumps up against secondary things and then decisions have to be made. And you have to ask yourself, what, what are my values? If something has to be given up, if something has to be dropped, what is most important? What is of eternal significance? What is God calling me to do? And so the apostles had a very strong sense of primary calling. They knew that as good as it was, and indeed it was good, to give out food and money to the poor, they knew that for them it would actually be wrong, it would actually be sin, it would be, it would be displeasing to God if they were to abandon the ministry of the teaching and preaching of the Word of God in over to give an increasing amount of time to the distribution of food and money. So what they came up with was, hey, we're going to create a committee. We're going to create a board, and they're going to oversee the ministry, and that will kind of be their, their primary thing. And so what they said is, we want some people who are gifted and they are full of the Spirit and wisdom. We want wise spiritual people. We want people who love the Lord and have demonstrated spiritual maturity to handle this business. And so they appoint seven men, and one of those seven was the man in front of us this morning, this man, Stephen. And I think this is important to know. So not only was he of, of reputation in the church already as a man full of the spirit and wisdom, but I want to highlight something. Stephen was chosen to oversee the ministry of food and money distribution. But what does it say here? What is the focus? It almost, it says nothing about that ministry. Rather, it says this. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. 
Uh, some of your translations, there, there is a manuscript variation. Some may read in Stephen full of grace and power. So it's either faith and power or grace and power. And I would like to point out there is no contradiction between either translation. Faith would highlight Stephen's part. That is, he's trusting in God himself, not in himself, not in the gifts and talents of men, not in anything else. Faith highlights our response to God. That's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to trust God, that God is who Scripture says he is, and that God will do what Scripture says God will do. That is faith. That's our end. Grace, on the other end, highlights what God is doing. Grace is God's response to faith. Faith is the receptacle. Grace is the gift. God gives grace to his people. And so Stephen is full of faith on his end, but grace from God. It comes from God. That's important to know. Grace and power. And apparently, this is amazing, Stephen did great wonders and signs among the people. So I'll get to this in our closing remarks, but suffice it to say for now, notice that although Stephen was tasked with focusing on one particular ministry, the Holy Spirit was not restricted to that ministry. It began pouring out in other ways that blessed people and glorified the name of God. Verse 9 says, Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia who were disputing with Stephen. So things begin to change here. Stephen apparently would visit synagogues. We know that he was what they call a Hellenistic Jew. So he was Jewish, as we saw last week, but he was Hellenized. That means he spoke the Greek language and probably had adopted Greek culture to an extent that wouldn't be the same as a Palestinian Jew of that time. Now, he seems to have traveled to various synagogues. How many there were, we're not quite sure. If you look at the Greek construction of the text, it could be anywhere from one to five synagogues. In other words, with the language, it could be there was one synagogue for all these different groups, or it could be there were two groups that represented these names, or there could have been four, or there even could have been five. We're not sure. But what we can get the idea of is who these people were. It says they were the synagogue of the freedmen. What that tells us is these were either freed slaves or former prisoners of Rome or their descendants. So they were probably freed slaves or freed prisoners or the descendants of them. This is interesting because that means they were probably of the same cultural background as Stephen. They were diaspora Jews. Remember, diaspora is just the Greek word for dispersion. And it came to be a technical term. It referred to those Jews who had been expelled at some time in Israel's history, and they were no longer able to grow up in their homeland. So they would grow up abroad. Now, we know from Philo of Alexandria that the great Roman general Pompey in 63 BC had expelled thousands of Jews from Jerusalem and enslaved them and brought them to Rome. But we also know later that uh, I think it was around 4,000 were set free and many of whom probably came back to Jerusalem. There is a chance that that is exactly the group of people to whom this text refers. 
I don't know if anyone likes archaeology. Does anyone like studying archaeology, looking at it? Okay, you might want to write this down, and you can Google this later, not during church. But you can Google this later, and it's the, uh, Google the Theodotus inscription. The Theodotus inscription. That's spelled T-H-E-O-D-O-T-U-S. The Theodotus inscription. Now, the Theodotus inscription was an inscription found in 1913 by an archaeologist, and it is the earliest known evidence of a synagogue in Jerusalem. Okay, so we know there was a synagogue. Some people said, oh, we don't think synagogues were there in the first century. We think they came later. Well, now we have evidence that there was at least one synagogue, probably more, in Jerusalem at that time. Furthermore, Theodotus, what, does that sound Jewish to you? Theodotus is not a Jewish name, it is actually Latin. It is a Latin name, which probably refers to a Roman background. So you have a synagogue inscription dating to the first century in Jerusalem, but in a Latin name. And this may actually, it's possible that that inscription refers to the very synagogue of the freedmen that we have in front of us in our text this morning. So that is an interesting piece of corroborating evidence to the biblical narrative, that this is not just a religious story, this is history. This is what God has done in real times, in real places, with real people. So they were made up these variety of backgrounds, and Stephen probably, as was the case with Paul, for example, in his mission, when Paul would go to a new place, his strategy, at least initially, was always to begin by going to his own people. He would begin by going to the Jews. And the obvious way to do that when he would arrive in a new town was to go to a synagogue. Because a synagogue was not just a place of worship, but it was sort of a little piece of Israel abroad. So a synagogue was not quite the same thing as the temple. The synagogue, yes, it would include the various aspects of worship, much like we do in church, by the way. As a matter of fact, many scholars point out that the New Testament church is modeled not so much on the Old Testament temple, but rather on the Jewish synagogue. If you look at the Jewish synagogue, you look at how they would take time to study the Torah, to copy the scriptures, to teach the scriptures, to engage in prayers, and then they would also do community life together, and they would deal with disciplinary matters in the community. If somebody was getting out of sorts, and they were behaving in a way that was immoral or unethical, and, and it was harming the community, they would actually render judgments among the elders. And so many people, and I think there's probably something to this, point out that the New Testament church is modeled more on the synagogue than it is the Old Testament temple. One bit of corroborating evidence for that in the New Testament is the fact that no New Testament leader is referred to as a priest. No New Testament leader is referred to as a priest. Now, if people think that the New Testament church is modeled off the temple, that's a very curious omission. One could hardly imagine an Old Testament temple service without a priest. You couldn't do it. It wouldn't happen, and yet no one is called a priest in the New Testament in a leadership position. As we've mentioned before, it's elders, it's pastors, or bishops. That's it. There are no priests mentioned as leaders in the New Testament. What was happening is Stephen was probably, like Paul, going to these synagogues, and he's not trying to cause problems, right? Because that's how he's, he's going to be painted. He wants to go there because he loves them. That's why he's going. Remember, 
when, when we try to preach the name of Jesus, when we preach the gospel, oftentimes what opposition is going to do is picture you, picture us, picture Stephen and the New Testament church like a bunch of agitators. You're just trying to cause problems. But that couldn't be further from the truth, at least for Stephen, and it shouldn't be for us. I believe that Stephen, who is modeling all throughout this narrative up into the very moment when he dies, think about this. Is there any doubt that Stephen loves these people when he's being stoned to death and he looks up and he sees Jesus before he's about to die? What does Stephen say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they... He says the same thing that the Lord Jesus said on the cross when he was paying for the sins of those who had crucified him. There is no doubt that Stephen was compelled not by hatred, not by bigotry, not by desire to be a troublemaker, but rather out of love. He loves the Jewish people. He loves his fellow countrymen. And that is why he was going to these places. The disputes arose because his message of hope and love in Jesus was rejected. And when people don't like the truth, they will often picture truth-tellers as agitators, hateful people. It seems as though there is nothing new under the sun even to this day. But verse 10 tells us, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Jesus promised his followers that when the Holy Spirit would, when, the, when he would ascend into heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would enable them to say and to do all that they needed to do in their hour of trial. It was a promise of Jesus, and you're actually seeing it fulfilled here. I know many of us could be intimidated and scared. What if we were to be? Is that possible in America? I don't know. What do you think? Is it possible that we could ever come to a place where we're not allowed to, to gather together to worship? Is it possible that somebody could say you're not allowed to teach the Bible, or at least your teaching of the Bible is going to need to be first? email to us at headquarters and then we'll go through it with a black pen and we'll start marking out all the things. Censorship will be censoring your sermons and you won't be allowed to do that. If you say certain things, we will take you to jail or you'll lose your nonprofit status or whatever it is. Is that conceivable? I think it is. I don't think it's necessarily, you know, again, are there conspiracies out there? Yes. But is that conspiracy theory to suggest that Christians could genuinely be persecuted in America today? I don't think so. I don't think so. It looks to me like we are moving more and more to a time and place in which that is possible. Again, we've seen isolated incidents of it, certainly. I think we have. But I do see that more and more it's becoming the kind of thing where the Christian message, the Christian witness... The Christian insistence that the greatest authority in the world, though we recognize earthly power, we do, we're called to do so, Romans 13, but we also recognize that no earthly power can take the place of the power of God. Amen. No earthly authority has the right to take apart what God has joined together. No earthly power. And so I think we need to be, as we're reading this, and we think to ourselves, oh, well, this was a different place in a different time. I think we need to start to see that perhaps it's not quite so different as it might appear at first glance. And as we witness this shift 
in values in American culture, as we witness a shift against so many long-held Christian beliefs, as we witness various attacks on perhaps not our particular group of Christians, but maybe our brothers and sisters in other denominations, maybe in times past, we drew such hard lines against other kinds of Christians that we said, well, it's happening to them, but it's not happening to me. But maybe the time is coming when all Christians, even if we disagree on secondary matters, we say, hey, on what matters most, we are together. We are one, and we're going to start to, we're going to need to start standing up for one another, even when it may not be directly attacked against us, when we see other people gathering together and supporting us, we need to recognize that there may be a ministry of cooperation. Uh, a recent example of this, of course, was the recent case which John MacArthur's church won. I don't know if you followed up on this, but uh, John MacArthur's ch church is being threatened by the state of California and the county of Los Angeles. And I don't know if you heard, but they recently won their case and they even won $800,000. Of that $800,000, the pastor, John MacArthur, said, we're giving it all back to the Thomas More Society who, who defended us. If you don't know who the Thomas More Society is, it's actually a Catholic legal religious defense fund. So here you have a Protestant evangelical fundamentalist partnering with a Roman Catholic legal defense fund for a common cause. And again, we're not saying that means we agree on every second. I think both sides are guys. No, we have, we have differences. We still do. Maybe that we're not as different as we think if we would love one another and talk together. Maybe after we do that, we'll still say, hey, I still come down on, on this about this issue. But deep down, we see that the fundamental doctrines of the faith that have been formulated classically in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, we agree on these things. What matters most, we agree. And we're going to need that support. But even more than the support of our fellow Christians, because we're not always guaranteed that either. We are guaranteed the wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit. What Stephen is being given is being promised to God's people today. And we should not think to ourselves, well, I'm a strong person. I, I don't easily give in to peer pressure. That might be so. But given enough pressure, given enough threats against yourself, your business, your family, your livelihood, your reputation, I think many of us would fold in our own strength. But you're not called to do this in your own strength. You wouldn't be wise to do this in your own strength. I have got to do this, not in my own strength, but in the wisdom and the power of the Spirit of the living God. Verse 11 records this response. You might think, wow, so the Spirit was given to Stephen and it was so powerful, they weren't able to resist. That means they became Christians, right? Wrong. When the word of God goes out, and many of us know this verse, and it is, of course, true, the word of God does not return void. But what does that mean? When we say the word doesn't go out, but does that mean it always produces a desirable result? Is that what we mean? Oh, the word of God goes out and people always become Christians. And they always love you in the end and see that you're a nice, wonderful, law-abiding citizen. No, honestly, friends, sometimes the word of God not returning void means this that it provokes a hostile response that will affect your earthly life. And sometimes as Christians, we get this kind of naive notion that, that, if, that if I'll just say the Word of God and I'll just do it, then everything will just kind of go the way I want. Like God will just work it all out and it'll be fine. 
And again, in one sense that might be true, but it certainly doesn't mean it'll be easy or without cost. There is a cost to following Jesus, and we're going to see that it will be paid by Stephen in his own blood. So the word did not return void. They were not able to resist. So what did they do? Rather than confess Jesus as Lord, it says, verse 11, then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So the first thing they do is notice this. They don't resort to legal threats yet. They're about to. Notice what they do. They start going around and stirring up people socially. You think about how that might be done today. You could use social media, right? You start a social media campaign saying, well, these Christians are these horrible people and they're, they're anti this and they're, they're this, that, and the other. They start just agitating people, start agitating. And you might say, well, but that's not the police. That's not the government. I'm not worried about it. But be mindful that part of the strategy in the past is, has begun by simply trying to turn the tide of popular opinion against Christians. That's been the strategy in the past. So that's what they're doing. First thing, step number one of this evil anti-gospel strategy, stir up public opinion against Christians. That is being done quite effectively in our culture today. The charge here is, uh, explicitly is that they heard Stephen, quote, speaking blasphemous words against God and against Moses. And of course, as you can probably tell, blasphemy was no laughing matter in the first century. Ultimately, they are trying to throw the book. This is a felony of the highest order. Capital punishment is possible if someone is charged and convicted of blasphemy. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. So they're working their way up. And remember, sometimes there's elders, there's scribes, there's people in government that are pragmatists. They're, they're not men and women of conviction, but once enough people start complaining and threatening their office, then they might do something. And that seems to be what happened. It began just with the people, but then you see, notice, it spills into those who have authority. It goes from the populace to the elders and to the scribes. And now what is the next result? Now we start to see legal power being leveraged on top of the social distortion. It says, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. Stephen was handcuffed and put into the back of a police car and driven to a courtroom for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they found a legal way of doing it. All of this would have been considered legal thus far. It says in verse 10, they, they went further. They went further. They also set up false witnesses. So now they know, even though they were able to stir up popular opinion against Stephen as a Christian, even though they were able to convince some of the leaders for various reasons that they ought to try these men, they don't trust the system to work out the results that they want. They don't want justice, do they? They don't want justice. They have an already desired outcome, and the legal system will simply be a tool, a pawn in what they're ultimately hoping to do. So in order to secure a desired result, they establish false witnesses, and they corroborate what was being said before. This man, verse 13, does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place 
and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now, this is rather interesting because Luke records that this charge was false. But false how? Well, it's false in the sense that ultimately, obviously, from a biblical perspective, it can't be blasphemy if it is ultimately God himself who is saying it. So in other words, even if they faithfully recorded what Stephen said, it's not blasphemy because God himself is the source of Stephen's message. It is the apostolic message. So that's one way in which it's not blasphemy. Now, I say that because there's probably truth to what they're saying. Do you think Stephen might have said something about a change and transition in light of Jesus, the Messiah, regarding the temple in Jerusalem and the keeping of the Mosaic Law? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that's at the heart of the New Testament. Now, Moses might be a reference not just to the written Torah, you have to understand, but the oral Torah as well. You have to understand, in order to understand Judaism, sometimes Christians think, oh, well, I'll just go to the Old Testament and they'll understand what I'm talking about and we'll be on common ground. But oftentimes that's not the case. Oftentimes, for many people with a, a background in Judaism, it's actually the unwritten Torah. It is the oral traditions of the elders and the rabbis that is functionally authoritative to where they wouldn't say this, but functionally, the teachings of the rabbis is equal to the authority of the Bible itself. And so for many people, it might have been Stephen attacking oral traditions, things that the rabbis had said that were unbiblical. This is something Jesus himself said during his earthly ministries. And why do you transgress the law of God for the traditions of your elders? Because they wanted to know what? Why do you forsake the traditions of the elders? Jesus says, Scripture is above the tradition of the elders. Tradition of the elders, it, it's not all wrong necessarily. Some of it could be good. But how do you know? The Word of God. The Word of God is the highest standard by which to judge all earthly human tradition. So there was probably some truth. We don't know exactly what Stephen was saying, but there was probably some truth to what these witnesses were doing. But nevertheless, we know that they were coming in and they were not being truthful. The goal was to take whatever there was that was true and twist it to whatever way they needed to, out of context, in order to get a guilty verdict on Stephen. And our text closes with this. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. It's interesting because here's this group looking down at Stephen as a demon. My, how unbelief mars the perception of our fellow human beings. Unbelief would have this council looking at Stephen as a demon who comes to destroy and upend the world they're trying to create. And yet God would say that Stephen is appearing as the face of an angel. The angel, of course, means messenger. Stephen is being an angel of God to these people, a messenger of God. And yet, through unbelief, they see him as somebody worthy of destruction. As we call to attention this necessity of having heroes and, and saints, these models of faith in desperate times, I think it is important that we dare to be a Stephen. And there are three things that we can pull from this text this morning. Number one, your ministry focus is not your ministry limit. Let me say that again. Number one, your ministry focus is not your ministry limit. 
We all have certain focuses. God gives you, you've got a job that you've got to focus on. It takes most of your time. Some of you, it's caring for a family member. They're very sick, and so most of your time is going there. Some of you have little children, and so you're caring for your little children most of the time. Uh, for some of you, you're serving in a particular capacity in the church, and that's most of your time, or something outside uh, the church most of the time. But what we see with Stephen, though his ministry focus was going to be overseeing the money tables and the food tables for the poor, notice how his ministry was in no way limited to that. Stephen was going above and beyond, and he was bearing witness to the truth of Jesus. He would fulfill that ministry which was given to him, that focus. But Stephen was wanting to take the message of Jesus out to anyone who would hear it. And I think the same is true for all of you this morning. Don't think that just because God has you focusing on something that he wants all of your life and witness to Jesus to be limited to that moment. Many people think, well, I have a ministry and that's the only place I tell Jesus about. Well, well what about your neighbors? What about your family members and your extended family? What about the people you're in business with that you have business relationships with for 25 years, but for 25 years you've never talked to them about anything but business? Whatever the case might be, I just think for many of us, we can limit what God is wanting to do. And you are not restricted from doing what is good. You are not restricted from getting the gospel of Jesus out anywhere and everywhere that we possibly can. So know this, you may give, be given a focus, and that's important and that matters, but that is not your ministry limit. Be mindful of other ways, any way you come into contact with another human being. So many Christians will tell me, well, well Pastor Mike, I just, you know, I, I, I put together, you know, circuit boards for computers. How is, how is that a ministry? Well, on any level, you come into contact with another human being, somebody else working alongside of you, a manager that you report to, whoever it is, anything that you do in life, going to watch a football game. Do you have buddies that you go and watch football with? Go and enjoy the game and give glory to God for this fun thing he's given you to do. But as a Christian, be mindful. Hey. Isn't it amazing in God's providence how he's using just this earthly thing that doesn't have eternal significance? I mean, Super Bowl feels like it sometimes, but, but you know, it has no eternal significance. But guess what? The eternal significance for God is unconnected to other people. What if I were to use these relationships? What if, what if I were to have a conversation with somebody at some time? Just invite them out for coffee and get to know them on a deeper level. Maybe it's a parent at a parent-teacher meeting that, that you see around. You're interested in your kid's education. This non-believer cares about their kid and they want a good education too. What about this opportunity to share Jesus with them? I just want you to know that like Stephen, you may have a focus, but it is not your limit. Be mindful of any way that you come into contact with people because the gospel is for everyone. Number two, your greatest asset is not your ability, but the Spirit's power. Number two, your greatest asset is not your ability, but the Spirit's power. Notice it doesn't say, and Stephen, with a resume full of many years of academic training or professional experience or various accomplishments and accolades. No, what is his resume? Full of faith and power. Acts 6, verse 8. Verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. 
Another reason that our ministry for Jesus and bearing witness to Jesus is limited is because we just think about what we're good at naturally. Well, I'm not a good public speaker. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just not good at, you know, doing this kind of organizing things. I'm not really good at this. I'm not really good at that. Well, not minimizing natural gifts and talents because I believe those come from God too. Amen? God is not just the giver of supernatural gifts. He's the giver of natural gifts. We need to recover that kind of mentality. Both the supernatural and the natural, it's not like one is of God and the other's not. That's how a lot of people think. Even Christians, sadly. Both are from God. They're distinct, but both are from God. What is necessary for Christian ministry is not necessarily any natural human ability, but the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to depend on that. And as things begin to change and heat up and to become more difficult for us as Christians, and I think it is, more and more will we need to rely not on ourselves, not on our strength, not on our wisdom and wit, but on the power of the Spirit of Almighty God. And lastly, number three, this is something you need to know. And I hope you take it to heart. When the wicked stand against you, Jesus is standing for you. When the wicked stand against you, Jesus is standing for you. That is what we're going to see next week in the life of Stephen. Though it seems like the wicked outnumber the righteous a thousand to one, and indeed I think they probably did, we're going to see there's only one that really matters. If Jesus is standing for us, then who can stand against us? What we need to be worried about is not how many they have, but if the one we have. When the wicked stand against you, Jesus is standing for you. We need to practice not being afraid of the faces of the world, but practice seeing the face of the one who has died and rose again and is coming again for his people. If he is for us, none can be against us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that the word of God is living and active, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we just pray, Lord, that this morning that word would go forward and pierce our hearts. We pray that you would take these words which represent the truths about who you are, who Jesus is, and who we are in light of you. And I pray you would take them and you would change us from the inside out. Lord, if we are fearing the wicked, Lord, we pray that you would cast out fear. Replace it with the love of God. May boldness be the result. Lord, if we are relying too much on our natural gifts and talents, our likes and dislikes, our preferences, rather than the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit, then let us, Lord, help us to repent from dead works. Help us to confess our misplaced trust. And help us to confess that you alone have all power in heaven and on earth. And that you are granting that power to your people 
for the glory and honor of your name. Just as the early church witnessed to the gospel with all that they had, we pray we would be ready and willing to bear witness with all we have, trusting in the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful in that focus and ministry you've given each one of us. But we also pray we would in no way limit what you want to do. Maybe there are things in this fellowship, in this body, for their benefit and for the glory of God that you want us to do, to commit to. We pray we would be willing and able to begin doing that, Lord. Lord, we pray if there's things you want us to do out there, somewhere in the world, to bear witness to Jesus, Lord. But it, maybe it's not our main thing, so it hasn't been our thing at all. But the time is now for us to begin allowing what the Spirit wants to pour to overflowing to flow out from our lives. We pray that we would allow the Spirit to truly work in the lives of all that we meet. We commit these things to you now, Jesus, and we just prepare for this time of response that you would imprint upon us your image that we might present you faithfully to the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close in worship this morning, we do so with three songs. During those first two songs, for those of you that would like to partake of Holy Communion, what we would ask you to do is just begin to prepare your heart.